you have a Bible, do turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we're going to join in 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 the middle of the chapter at verse 12. This really marks the beginning of, of a new section in the book of Deuteronomy. Up to this stage, Moses has provided in the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, a kind of review of the history of God's people from the Exodus through the 40 years of, of wilderness wandering. He's told them of how it is that God brought them out. He's reminded them of how God spoke and gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. He's reminded them of how they rejected that, that gracious offer, offer of, of relationship and covenant by worshipping a golden calf. And here, as it were, he, he moves from looking back for looking at the, the problem of, of God's people's persistent, stubborn refusal to listen to him, and begins to, to look ahead to so what will happen next. Now as Israel prepares to enter into the land that God has promised, as after 40 years of wilderness wandering, they, they approach, as it were, the, the end state of, of all that wandering, as they prepare to enter into the land that God had promised to Abraham, how is it they are to live? And Moses begins, as it were, this next great section in Deuteronomy, which will run on through particular commandments and explication of, of God's Ten Commandments and law in, in detail, a detailed understanding of how it is they are to live in the land. But he begins by reminding them what it is God asks of them and why. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12 and through to the end of the chapter, verse 22. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice to the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner therefore, For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So far are God's very words. Let's um, think on what they mean for us and hear God's address to us today. A question I guess we all face is what we make of of God's law. It is a cliche, but it is true that that many a Bible reading plan and New Year's resolution has failed in the spring as people reach Leviticus, as they reach, as it were, the, the long stretches of God's law. Suddenly there are lists of of commandments. We think, well, what has this got to do with me as a Christian? What do I make of God's law? Now I can't address, and and I won't address from 
this little bit of Deuteronomy, every question you might have about God's law. I'm sure if we did, as it were, a, a straw poll of what Christians made of God's law, we would find every conceivable opinion from we should enforce the criminal code of, of the Old Testament right the way through to, well, we live under grace and not under law. The law means nothing to me. The Ten Commandments don't apply anymore. I, I'm in Jesus. We can't answer every question. And yet, but behind it all lies that question, what do I make when I open up my Bible and I turn, and it may be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, because the New Testament is, is full of commands. I open up my Bible and I find a, a command addressed to, to God's people. I read through the Sermon on the Mount and, and see the, the bar set, as it were, even higher than it was in Deuteronomy. And as I read through those commands, how, how do I feel? Am I slightly disappointed? Would I rather read of of God's grace? What, what do I make of, of those commands? How does my heart respond? Because after all, that is, I guess, God's answer to the question, well, what next here for God's people? We said that we, we're right on the cusp of a major moment in the history of God's people as they go from, from wandering into the land that God has promised. What next? What now? You, you saved us, there's been the delay caused by our disobedience, but now to go into the land, what next? What's it going to look like to live in response to salvation? And God's answer, as we will see, is, is law. He, he will give them c- commands. He, he will give them, in some cases, quite detailed commands. Now, there's more to be said about what to do with the details of the commands that follow in Deuteronomy, but the examples that Moses give here, I'm sure, are commands that we hear addressed to ourselves. The the command to to look after those who are exiles and sojourners, the the fatherless and the widow. The command not to show partiality, the command to love God and and not to worship any other God. So those commands come to us as they did to the people of Israel. But how do they strike our hearts? After all, Moses speaks to a people who have again and again disobeyed, ignored, and misunderstood the commands that God has given. Even as he comes down from from the mountain with the the tablets of the law, the the covenant that God has made, the people are worshipping the golden calf, as he's just reminded them. People have misunderstood the particular commands that God has given, but even why he has given them. Moses must now begin his sermon once again with a reminder of the whole purpose of of law, what it is from first principles that God demands of his people and and why. And what is true for for God's people is true for us. As we read those commands in in God's word, our our temptation is both to, to misunderstand or to ignore what we are commanded to do, but even to misunderstand, I think, what it is that God expects of us at all, even from first principles. I hope that Deuteronomy chapter 10 will help us to reset and to think again about the place that those commands, those commandments, what we might call law, will play in our life as as Christians. Two things to to see. One, I think, is what it is that God demands of us. And and the second is why. In both cases, we'll see that the place that the, the laws, the commands of God play in, in that. So firstly, what does God demand of his people? What does God demand of his people? And the answer is wholehearted, loving obedience. 
What does God ask or demand of his people? Wholehearted, loving obedience. It's clear, isn't it? Moses makes it very clear in that great rhetorical question in verses 12 and 13. He answers that very question. What does God want from you? Why has he rescued you? What would he have you do in the land? What, what next? Sit back and, and relax and, and rejoice? Do what you want and, and decide now what the right way to, to run things is and, and how to respond? What will know? What does God require of you? Verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Moses makes it sound so simple. He can run it off, as it were, in a sentence. And yet here he demands in short order five things of God's people. I'm not going to break them all down and have sort of multiple subpoints, but there are five things here, aren't there? What does God ask of his people? That they, they fear him, that they walk in obedience to him, that they love him, that they serve him with, with all their, our hearts and, and souls, and that they observe his commandments. Fearing, walking, loving, serving, observing. F- five different things, and I guess we might be tempted to play some off against one another. What, observing punctiliously the commands of God seems to run counter to the idea of loving God wholeheartedly. Fearing is something that we do inwardly as we, we tremble, but, but, but walking is an outward, visible thing. And yet, for, for, for Moses and so for God, these are all descriptors of, of one basic orientation. And we see it in what they're all directed to. Actually, though there are different verbs, fear, walk, love, serve, observe, ultimately all of them have one object, one thing that they are all directed to, and that one thing is is God. More than that, it's the Lord in capital letters, the covenant God who has called his people out of Egypt, who's made them something new. After all, we're not just to, to fear. We are to fear God. Not be terrified of him, but, but rightly place him and ourselves. Live our lives with, with a right hierarchy that God is, is, is up here and I am down here. I, I fear him. I know what I am next to him. We're not to, to, to walk in, in any way we see, but to walk in his ways. The ways in which God walks like him, but also the ways in which he directs us to walk. We're not to to love anybody, but to love God. Not to serve anyone, but to serve God. And not to observe any commandments, but to observe the Lord's commandments. Five verbs, perhaps, to pick out different aspects of this this loving, wholehearted obedience, but, but all of them directed at God. It is all about God. See, the key thing here is, is not what we think about ourselves or, or what success we achieve or, or how we relate to other people or what they think of us. The, the answer to the question, what does God demand of his people is, how are we responding to him? 
Now from that will flow all sorts of things about how we relate to other people and, and even, I guess, how people might think of us as, as they see our response to God. But, but God first and foremost demands of his people a certain sort of response to himself. The whole of the, the way of life in the land, the whole of our way of life is to be marked as God-centered and God-focused. Every question in the Christian life about how must I live must ultimately be answered in some way by how I relate to God in some particular aspect of, of my life. Because it's him we are to fear. In his ways we are to walk. Him who we are to, to, to love. Him who we are to serve. And his commandments who, which we are to observe. It's, it's all about him. It's obedience to the Lord. And, and more than that, it's, it's to be a, a, a radical and a comprehensive a wholehearted, loving obedience to the Lord. In those five verbs that Moses lists off, in that description of, of God's desired response from us to, to his grace and to who he is, we, we see the, the whole gamut of, of who we are and what we can provide. He, he doesn't want just our outward observance, though he does want that. He does want us to observe his commands. It's not to be just inward. No, he wants the outward. But he doesn't just want the outward. He wants the inward fear and the inward love. You see, God demands a a radical obedience in the true sense of of radical. Radical from from the root. That, That I obey God from the inside out, not to tick boxes or to, to do what I, I believe is right or to be seen by others, but out of a true love and obedience towards him and what he has done. Moses doesn't separate out the, the inward, our, our, our feelings, and the outward. It's, it's a strange thing, isn't it, to command us to, to love someone, to command love. I guess at some level we think, well, love should just kind of happen. If, if love is, is commanded, if I'm told to love, is it, is it really love? And yet Moses unashamedly can command us to, to love God, to, to respond from the heart in a certain way. He'll go on to show us why, to give us motivation for that. It's not just a matter of saying, well, do it because I've told you to do it. But, but it's, it is a command. We are told that we must love God inwardly, but also obey him outwardly. It's tempting, isn't it, sometimes, as I've said already, to, to play off those two things against one another. To, to think that, well, maybe I look at certain Christians and say, well, they're all about the outward. That they're ticking all the right boxes, but do they really feel it from the heart? Or maybe to look across at other Christians and think, well, they... They, they, they may love God and, and sing lots of songs about that, but do they really obey him? Are they really keeping his commands? Now, I think often that, that perception that those two things are separate in other Christian brothers and sisters is more in me than it is in them. But see, even if it, if it were true, it, it can't be so. God would not have either disconnected from the other. There, there is no choice to be made here. What would God rather have? My wife is, is sat back there, so you could ask her afterwards, which do you think she would prefer? That I have deeper emotion and, and love towards her, that I write love poetry and make cards and, and express admiration every turn, 
but I don't actually do anything for her. That, that I never actually lifted a, a finger to help or, or to serve or, or to do any good towards her beyond expressing some w- wonderful kind of um, poem of, of her glory. Or would she prefer that, that I was a kind of machine who never expressed any emotion or, or, or love, but, but who did all that needed to be done, who was constantly doing, but, but never once said or even thought, I, I love you. Now, clearly, it's a stupid choice. My, my wife would say she doesn't want either of those things. She, she wants at least some measure of both. She wants me to love and to serve her. To, to serve her, but to serve her from the heart. Now, now yes, I, I guess you, you would take service without love over nothing. But what we long for is, is both. After all, my, my, my love, I guess, that, that, that deeply expressed love poetry wouldn't really mean much if it, if it gave birth to, to no action in my life. It, it would be questionable if it was really genuine love at all or just some kind of frothy emotion. God's demands of us are, are no different. His, his law is not running counter to his demand for heartfelt relationship and, and love and, and obedience. See, God's law, as it were, is, is the outward and, and inward picture of what a life of, of deep love towards God will look like. It's his gracious help to us to, to walk in, in the way of both inward and, and outward love. God's law has always demanded our hearts and heartfelt obedience. It's never been enough to merely tick the external boxes. God wants changed lives and changed hearts. Now, that might seem obvious. Of course, that's what real love looks like. Of course, God wants both our hearts and our outward obedience. Yet, how often we, we ignorantly or, or willfully get that wrong. Uh, after all, this is my experience as a teacher, that, that when it comes to, to giving rules, we all look, as it were, for, for the loopholes. In the next week, as I go back after half-term, I will hear, I'm sure... Pretty much every day, some version of the phrase, technically, sir, you didn't say that I couldn't. Or, technically, sir, what I'm doing is not exactly what you told me not to do. All of us are, are, are British who are finding the, the, the loophole, uh, trying to, to separate the, the inward demand for, for love and obedience from the, the outward demand for, for obedience, to, to find some way of playing the two across against one another and say, well, inwardly I, I felt the right thing, even if outwardly I didn't do the right thing. Or outwardly I did the right thing, and, and therefore you just have to assume that I did inwardly believe the right thing, even if I only did it but because you told me to. I shook hands, and, and I may have hated them in my heart, but, but at least I, I shook hands and said, all is forgiven. The Israelites... Me at times, and I guess whole churches, can, can act as if God is, is most concerned about detailed external obedience. To become, I guess, a crutch, a way of, of proving ourselves to, to one another and to those outside. To, to try and show that we really do love God when, when our heart is, has gone cold. It's worth saying often, I think, that when we do truly try to obey God's commands, we will find deep love for him. Actually, sometimes fake, fake it till you make it. There's a, there's a genuine truth to that. I, I challenge you to, to try and live according to God's commands and, and not love for God who gave his commands. We'll come to 
in a moment. But it is possible, isn't it? At times to just go through the motions outwardly and not to feel it inwardly. But that cannot be. God would not have that. But, but nor would God have the opposite. God would not have us replace a longing to do as he has commanded with our, our, our man-made expressions of, of emotional response to him. God wants our hearts and our obedience, our heartfelt worship and love, but also our, our heartfelt searching of the scriptures to know all that he would command us and, and our longing and work practically to do it. What does God want from us? He wants heartfelt, loving obedience to him. All of us, all the time, committed to to him. In relationship and in longing to obey his commandments. But most have gone to show us, well, why? After all, he could have just said, well, God demands this of you and, and here's what he demands that you do. Here are those commands. But, but he, as it were, bridges that gap and gives us motivation to, to live in that way. He's given us the, the what God demands us, but then he gives us the, the why. I want to very quickly just pick out three, three things, I think, that, that, that he shows us that will motivate us to have that kind of wholehearted, loving obedience to God that, that wants to both give him the inward love, but also the outward obedience. I think all of them can be summed up in this. Why should we obey God? Answer, but because it's the Lord who asks. Because it's the Lord who asks. In verses 14 to 22, there is a huge amount going on. In quick succession, we hear once again three times that the demand that God's people obey him. In verse 16, the command to, to circumcise the foreskin of the heart and be no longer stubborn. To, to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to, to God's ways and to him. In verse 19, that the command to love God's, the sojourner, the, the fatherless and widow, as God loved his people when they were sojourners and alone in this world. And in verse 20, the command to love and serve God and, and him only. But, but the focus in these verses from 40 to 22 is not on the specifics of what God would have us do, so much as it's on the, the reasons for living in that way. And all of them come back like the obedience to God. Who are we to obey? What is the whole Christian life to be about? Well, a response to who God is. Why are we to respond in that way to God? Well, because of who God is. Not just any old generic God, but, but the Lord. The Lord who revealed himself to, to Moses and named himself the God who made covenant with, with Abraham and in Christ with, with us. Three times as God, through Moses, makes this demand of his people, he re- points back to, to something about himself that will motivate them to, to love him the way they should and to obey him. That's worth saying that it would be enough, it would be enough that God is God. God need not give us any motivation to obey him beyond the fact that he is God. That would be enough. He is, as he tells us here, the Lord of lords and the God of gods. If God said do it, then we should do it. I, I should need no more motivation than that, beyond the fact that it is God who has spoken. 
And he is God. And yet God in his kindness does give us more than that. More than the fact that this is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the, the, the mighty and great and awesome God. Three aspects of God's character he picks out. Firstly, God, God points to, through Moses, his grace. So let's again to verses 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth of all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. There's a particular aspect of God's grace here. When we think of God's grace, we often think about the fact that God loves sinners. And that is astounding. It's astounding that God would love sinners like you and me. But here there's, a, I guess, a, a more general form of grace that is shown that the God who is so mighty would love any particular group of people or any particular person. That, that the infinite God would have any interest in, in you and in, and in me. Did you ever stop to think how amazing that is? It is in some ways an offence that, that God would, would pick out one people from among all the peoples of, of the world. Or, or in this place, this city, little groups of, of, of Christians gathering in churches this morning would, would speak particularly to them. That he would show any interest in, in calling this group of people sat here in this room and not others. That, that the mighty Lord of Lords would, would be interested in us desire to speak to us. If I ever met the, the, the king, I wouldn't expect him to be particularly interested in me, truth be told. I would expect him to ask the kind of standard questions that you ask, what do you do? The queen, apparently, the former queen, had it down to, to, to a T. She, she had cunningly worked out the particular questions she could ask you that would show just the right amount of interest without that it were opening up too wide a conversation. That's why the Queen would always ask someone when she met them, we might even know what the question is. Did you come far today? It's a great question to ask. Do you see, it shows interest in your personal life, and yet it's not open-ended enough that someone's going to go off on a rant or, or, or tell them about your actual life. It doesn't say, what are the current problems facing you in your life? What bothers you? What's your job? How's it going? No, no, did you come far today? Open enough to show that you care, but, but not too open. Now, if I met the king, I suspect I'd be asked some version of that question. Did you come far today? I care enough not to embarrass myself, but but I don't really care. And I wouldn't be offended by that. I guess partially because the king is just a stranger. But more than that, he is the king, and I'm not. God is, is far, far beyond the king. And yet he is interested in speaking to, to you here this morning. He would declare his particular love and purposes, not in some generic way, blared out to the universe, but, but particularly to you. In the preaching of his word right now, he is speaking not, not to the whole universe, but, but to this group of people sat here. He is, he is interested enough in you to speak to you. In a moment, he will, in the Lord's Supper, declare Christ's death, once again to you, and at this table, we as the particular people will gather, because he cares about us. That is astounding grace before you even consider the fact that we are sinners. Even were we righteous, and we're not, but were we righteous, that would still be surprising. That God is interested in us in particular. God is full 
of grace. Full of grace. If God has spoken and, and has chosen to, to, to as it were, accommodate and, and lure himself so much as to speak language that we can understand and, and to address us in our particular needs at a particular time, how could we not listen and obey? How could we not love and serve a God like that who has taken the time out, as it were, of, of ruling the whole universe to, to address our particular needs and concerns right here and now? How could we not love and obey a God like that? Second aspect of God's character that Moses picks out is, is just his, his character. Here's the second reason to, to obey God. Because God doesn't demand anything of us but, but to be like him. We, we all despise, I think, at some level, the, the hypocrite. Though we are often hypocrites ourselves. The, the person who says, do as I say and not as I do. We want to follow the person who calls us to, to join them and who, who provides an attractive picture of what it is that they would call us to. End the service then. That's what... Um, I don't know what that was. Um, but that um, we can. I think we're getting some crossover on there. We'll see who comes back. I, I, I've been joined, accompanied by a second voice. I apologize for that. So that. I don't think it's my own phone. It might be, possibly. But um, we have a God who calls us to, to join him. In being like him. And as we see the character of God revealed in his commands, he, he is a God who is well worthy of our love for him. God is a, a beautiful God as revealed in his commandments. Listen again to verses 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He's not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love for sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. God calls us to, to love those in need, but he is the kind of person who loves those in need. Though he himself is the ultimate established person in the heaven of heavens, he loves the, the, the most needy foreigner and exile. God loves those in need, and so, so should we. After all, every commandment of God shows us something about his character and what he's like. The, the, the God who commands that we speak the truth, well, isn't that first of all a picture of his character, that he always speaks the truth? The God who commands us to love life and not murder loves life and would rather send his own son to die than see a single sinner die. Every commandment gives us a picture of, of the God who gave it. The commandments we make... Give us a, a, a picture, I guess, of the rules I make in my house. Give me a picture of, of me, the kind of things I care about. The commandments that God gives, gives a picture of him and therefore motivation to keep them as we, we see how wonderful God is and therefore how good his ways are. Finally, God shows us not just his grace and his character in the commandments, but, but his goodness. So blink in it and you'll miss it one, but... In verse 13, why did God give all these commandments to his people, ultimately? Is it some kind of, of power trip? Some desire that other people would shape their whole life around him so that he might feel good? Well, he needs nothing from us. Verse 13, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, 
for your good. For your good. Wholehearted loving obedience to God will, will be difficult. It will be difficult, it will be countercultural, it will make you stand out, it will not always make you popular, it won't always make you happy in the moment to obey God's ways. And yet God would tell us that ultimately all these commandments were given for our good. Basically that's the people knowing that, that their continued possession of the land will be conditional upon their obedience to, to God's law. But more than that, the way that God gives us to live is, is a good way. In our more, I guess, rational moments, we, we can look upon the way that God would have us live and say, that's a good way to live that will bring us life and happiness and joy. Look, it may not in the moment make me feel pleasure, but, but I know that the God who made the universe and loved me enough to send Jesus has given me these commands because he longs to do me good. How could he give his son to die for me and yet didn't give me commands that, that would destroy my, my joy and happiness and, and be bad for me? God desires my good because he is good. In the short term, it may not look like that, but in the long term, I will see that God's ways are good. There then are some reasons in, in brief to, to obey God just from this little passage. What should we take away? I hope we take away that as we turn up those, those commandments of, of God, as we, we turn through our Bible reading and we reach even Deuteronomy, but particularly as we reach maybe the Sermon on the Mount and, and see the commandments that God would give his people to, to, to live by, that we don't see switch off and, and think this isn't for us. That, that we've been rescued or it's just a picture of our, our need for Jesus. Though it is a picture of that. But, but rather long to obey these commands from the heart as an expression of our deep love for God. That's reflecting our outward obedience to him. That is a, a challenge. God has given us help, I guess, psychologically to do it in the motivation of, of his grace and and his character and his goodness revealed in those commandments. But still it might seem beyond us. That, that central command in verse 16, to, to circumcise the foreskin of our heart, and be no longer stubborn, is, is hard to obey. It seems like a tall order that we would be able to put off, as it were, sin and our sinful desires, and truly obey God, not just outwardly, but deeply from the heart. Let me leave you with one final encouragement. It's a very striking picture, circumcising the foreskin of, of, our, of our hearts. Circumcision, after all, is a very striking outward sign. I had to explain it to a group of 11-year-olds a couple of weeks ago, and I can assure you that, that it made them sit up and listen when I explained to them what circumcision was. It is a very striking thing. And here God says it's not just to be an outward sign but to be something that happens inwardly to the heart. Notice something that the people are to do themselves. They are to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. And you might think, well, I can't do it. I can't change my heart. But of course, God has an answer. Just before we finish, do you flick ahead if you have Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 30. As a striking image, it, it's not surprising that we might spot it when it comes up again. As Moses finishes his sermon, here we see, as it were, the beginning of the meat of his sermon. As he finishes in verse 30, 
he returns this image of the circumcision of the heart. Chapter 30, verse 6. He says, if you, as it were, choose life and trust in God, then, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That which is beyond us, God can do. Are you here today and if you're honest, your your heart is not committed to God? You don't truly trust in in Jesus. You find it hard to to serve God wholeheartedly. The last thing I want you to do is to go away thinking, what I need to do is try harder. You do need to try harder. Unashamedly, God in in Deuteronomy 10 tells us to to, to circumcise our own hearts, to to, to work hard, to obey God, to, to look at the motivations that we have to obey his law. But ultimately, we should pray that God would do the work that only he can do. That that our work to obey and wholeheartedly love God is is met and accompanied by God's work of circumcising the heart by his spirit. By by bringing us to new life in Jesus Christ or or by giving us grace and and help in our struggles against sin. God promises to do the the very thing that he has commanded us to do. He commands us to circumcise our hearts, but in the end he knows that his help will be needed and he promises to provide it by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray for God's help to do that now before we share the supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us, that you are the great God, for speaking to us now in your word, and for speaking to us in moments to come in the supper. As we come once again to you and and listen to your voice, would you help us to put off sin, to, to circumcise, as it were, our hearts? But more, would you do that work yourself by your spirit, that we might belong to you and obey you? In Jesus' name, amen.